Appreciate everybody's presence this evening. Glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad you're here and hope to have a chance to meet you before you have to go. You might remember a few weeks ago, or maybe started a couple of months ago, we highlighted the question asked by the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Remember the, the jailer uh, went into the prison where Paul and Silas were being held. An earthquake had taken place. The prison doors were open. The jailer thought that all the prisoners had escaped and he would pay with his life. So he took a sword to take his own life rather than face the torturous death that would have been inflicted on him by the, by the government. And Paul stopped him. Do yourself no harm. We're all here. And the Philippian jailer then asked, well, what, what must I do to be saved? And so we tried to answer that question by looking at this account in Acts chapter 16 and then supplementing it with other information we find from the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. And what we found was that non-believers like the jailer didn't believe in Christ at that time when he, when he asked that. He was told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he would be saved. And Paul continued to teach him, spoke the word of the Lord to him, eventually told him and taught him about being baptized in Jesus' name. We know that because it tells us that same hour of the night they took him and he was baptized. We find that believers are told to repent of their sins. So we see that in Acts chapter 2, for example, verse 36. Peter calls upon the people to know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They were persuaded by Peter's words and say, they asked, what do we need to do? We, we believe, we accept what you've had to say. Now what do we need to do? And they're told to repent. And so a believer in Christ is told to repent of his sins. Believers are also taught to confess their faith. How would we know that a person has faith except his, by his confession? And so he's asked to confess what he's come to believe. And so Romans chapter 10 verse 9 tells us, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And so believers are told to repent, confess their faith, and then penitent believers, believers who are willing to repent of their sin, are told to be baptized. And so Acts chapter 2 again, they call out, the believers cry out, what must we do? They're told to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of for the forgiveness of your sins. And so, what must I do to be saved? Here, here are the things that we, we must do to be saved. Notice that there is something for us to do to be saved. On that occasion, Acts chapter 16, when the jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul gave him an answer. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he spoke the word of the Lord to him, and Paul and others took him that same hour of the night and, and baptize them. Yes, there is something for us to do to be saved. And we're given the answer to that question from the, from the New Testament itself. We added to that Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, which tells us that we will be presented blameless before the Lord 
if we continue steadfastly in the faith. And so again, Colossians 1, 23. Well, let's begin in verse uh, 22. Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so even after we obey the gospel initially, have our sins forgiven, we have the ob obligation and responsibility to be faithful, to continue in the faith. I just used an expression that I want to uh, kind of support, the idea of obeying the gospel. Sometimes people call that expression into question. How do you obey the gospel? Well, the gospel com contains commands that we must obey or instruction that, that we must obey. Now, it also involves or, or uh, contains facts that we accept as true. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. On the third day He was raised up according to the Scriptures, and He was seen by numerous people after His resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5 or 6 or so. And so there's the gospel, the facts of the gospel that we are to accept as true. But then the gospel also contains instruction that we are to put into practice, that we are to obey. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 says that Christ will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. And so there we find that expression straight out of the text. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so obeying the gospel is a sound scriptural biblical idea. And so these people obeyed the gospel. The jailer obeyed the gospel. The people on Pentecost obeyed the gospel. People in Samaria, Lydia obeys the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch obeys the gospel. So I want to add one, one more installment to this series of, of lessons. When these people obey the gospel, what do they become? And so they obey the gospel. Now, now what do they become? What did the Philippian jailer, when he obeyed the gospel, when he was baptized, what did he become? The people on the day of Pentecost, when they obeyed the gospel, what, what did they become as a result of obeying the gospel? Well, I want to try to answer that question in the time that we have tonight. There are several words in the New Testament that are used to describe these people once they obey the gospel. There are several terms that are used to describe them. For example, they're called believers. And we're going to take a few minutes and look at several passages where we find that kind of terminology. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, for example, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. And so these are believers, believers in the Lord, constantly added to the number of those who obey the gospel. Acts chapter 10 and verse 45. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed when they saw the Holy Spirit being poured out on Cornelius and his family. All the circumcised believers, that is, all those among the Jews who had obeyed the gospel, they, they were believers. Look at another passage or two. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7. 
he's uh, commending the, the church there at Thessalonica for their, for their faithfulness, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so you become an example to the believers. So the people that obey the gospel are described as believers. Christians are called believers because they've put their faith in Christ. Faith is one of the chief features of their new life in Christ. They are, they're believers. That's, that's one of the chief features of their new life as followers of Christ. And we might use this term in this way today. And we might ask about a certain individual, is he a believer? Well, yes, he's a Christian. And so we're described as believers because, again, it's one of the predominant features of our life. We put our faith in, we put our belief in Jesus as the Christ. Another term that's used to describe these people, including ourselves, our hope, I hope, is disciple. They're called disciples. So go back to the book of Acts and we'll notice just two or three examples of this. I think about 20 times in the book of Acts, those who obey the gospel, like the people on the day of Pentecost and others, they're described as disciples. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. And so the number of disciples was increasing and, and multiplying. And throughout this passage, down through about verse 7 or so, you find this word used multiple times. Verse 7 says, The Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So multiple times, especially in the book of Acts, but perhaps in other places as well, those who obey the gospel, those who pledge themselves to Christ, those who become followers of Christ, are described as disciples. And no wonder... Remember Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commissions the apostles to go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, what, what is a disciple? They're called believers because faith or belief is one of the chief features of their new life. We're called disciples because we sit at the feet of Jesus, so to speak. He is our teacher. We're learning from Him and we're following His teaching. That's what a disciple is. One that learns from the teacher and then practices what that teacher teaches. So if you hear about somebody, for example, that maybe was a, he's described as a disciple of Gandhi. Well, what would you expect to find in him? Well, he's read the writings of Gandhi, maybe read his autobiographies. He's learned about Gandhi and his approach, maybe a nonviolent protest and things like that. And he puts that into practice. He's learned from Gandhi, and he practices what he's learned. Jesus is our teacher. We follow his teaching. We learn from him, and we practice what he teaches. That's what a disciple is. And both of those elements must be found in us if we're going to be genuine disciples of Jesus. John 8, verse 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, if you hear my teaching and practice it, then are you truly or genuine disciples of mine. Those who believe the gospel and obey it in the first century are described as saints, believers 
and disciples and saints. Let's look at a couple of passages where uh, that's, that's found. Acts chapter 19, or chapter 9 and verse 13. Ananias told by God to go and teach Saul of Tarsus. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. He's talking about those who have obeyed the gospel, disciples or believers in Christ. He describes them as saints. You see this a good bit in the opening of Paul's letters. For example, Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, he's writing to those who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so those who have their sins forgiven, those who obey the gospel, they're described as saints. And so a saint in the Bible is not someone who possesses a very high rank or a specially high position of believer or disciple. Now it's used that way in the religious world sometimes. We talk, talk about St. Paul or St. Peter, St. Francis, or Mother Teresa has been canonized. She's a saint now. And so this is a special class, a very high rank. But that's not the way that word is used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, anyone who has been sanctified by the blood of Christ, anyone who has been made holy by the blood of Christ, is considered a saint. They've been sanctified. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a good illustration of the point. Beginning in verse, well, verse 11 says, Such were some of you, you remember the description that he gave in verses 9 and 10, The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, don't be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters, adulterers, and so forth, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. So anybody who's had their sins forgiven, anybody that's been washed in the blood of Christ, has been sanctified, they're a saint as far as uh, the Lord is concerned. He's been set apart from ordinary people in the world, <laughs> set apart for God's use. That's what a holy thing is. And the word saint just means a, a holy person. Now that puts upon us some obligation and responsibility. If we've been sanctified, we need to pursue sanctification. That's Hebrews chapter 12 and Verse 14, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And so we've been sanctified, we've been taken by God, cleansed of our sin by the blood of Christ, set apart now for His use in, in the world. And so we, we are described as believers, disciples, saints. We are children of God. Another description of those who obey the gospel 1 John talks about, or the letters of John talk uh, extensively about children of God. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Shall greater love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him, but beloved. Now we are children of God. It's not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. So we are... We are children of God. How do we become children of God? Well, we're born again, you know. Just like physically children come into the world by being born, so we become children of God by being born of God. 
That particular terminology is found here in the book of 1 John as well. Look at 1 John 3 verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. And so we're born of God. Jesus, of course, uh, uh, uses this sort of, this illustration first, being born again back in John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. We are born of water and the Spirit in, in order to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6 says, that which is born of flesh is the flesh, or is flesh, and that which is born of spirit, of the Spirit is spirit. And so we are children of God. We are born into the family of God. Now, now Paul uses the analogy of adoption, maybe more often than the analogy of new birth. So in Paul's writings, we find that we are adopted into the family of God. We noted that even this morning, Romans 8, verse 15. You've not received the spirit of slavery again, leading to fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so we are adopted into the family of God. Well, we know what happens in the case of an adoption. Here's someone who is not a natural child of a husband and wife. They're, they take that child, even though he's not their natural child, he take, they take them into their family and treat them in all respect as, as if he were a natural child. Paul describes us as, by nature, children of wrath. We're, we're sinners. And so, in that sense, we're, we're not by nature God's children because we, we get involved in sin, and that alienates us from God. But God takes us into His family and adopts us and treats us as a full-fledged child. And so, let's see, we're believers, disciples, saints, children of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, a common description of those who obey the gospel. Uh, sometimes we find it in the plural, that we are, we are brethren. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. It's interesting that he appeals to them on the basis of them, their being brethren, brothers and sisters of one another. As brothers and sisters, we need to all agree. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, another case in point. Actually wrote to you not to associate with someone who is named a brother if he's an immoral person. And we could continue. We noted 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 this morning where Peter refers to Paul as his beloved brother. And so in Christ we are brothers and sisters. We have the same father. God is our father. We are his children. We are brothers and sisters. And so, as brothers and sisters, we need to treat each other and act toward each other in a, in, a, in a family sort of way, in a loving way. So, as we deal with each other, we need to take into consideration the fact that this is a brother or this is a sister. We need to take that into consideration. And so, these are all terms that describe those who pledge themselves to Christ, who obey the gospel, uh, they do those things we've talked about. They put their faith in Christ. They repent of their sins. They confess their faith. They're baptized in the name of Christ. Now they're believers, disciples, saints, children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And you may be able to think of other words in the New Testament that describe them. These descriptions highlight one feature or another of their new relationship with God in Christ. And so what did the jailer become? 
Well, he became a believer, a disciple, a saint, a child of God. He became a brother and sister to other children of God. But there was only one name that they wore. There was only one name the believers wore. The saints wore only one religious name. Now, you can describe them in many different ways. Believer, disciple, saint. But when it comes to the name that they wore, the name they wore was Christian. Now, that's the only name that they wore. Now, that word appears three times in the New Testament. So let's look at those three occasions where the word Christian is found. So in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, Paul left, for, uh, uh, Barnabas left to find Saul in, uh, in Tarsus in verse 25. Then verse 26, when he found them, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You would think the word Christian would be found all over the New Testament. It's only found three times. Here's the first time. The disciples are called Christians first in Antioch. Now, notice that they are disciples, but the name that those disciples wore in religion was Christian. We find it again over in Acts chapter 26 and in verse 28. On that occasion, Paul is trying to teach Agrippa the gospel. He's talking to him about Christ and what Christ has done and trying to persuade him to put his faith in Christ. And you remember the response of Agrippa. Paul says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to be a Christian. Or you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Or do you think that in such a short time you'll persuade me to be a Christian? You think you can persuade me to be a Christian in this short amount of time perhaps is the idea. But that, by now, even those who are not disciples are calling the disciples Christians. And so that name has become, become known. Now the third time the word is used is over in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, Peter is encouraging the, the Christians that he's writing to to remain faithful. It says in verse 15, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed but to glorify God in this name. And so the name Christian. That's the name that the disciples were called. They, they were also believers and saints and children of God, but they took the name Christian. The name Christian is not modified by any other religious name in the New Testament. Now, we always find that sometimes. We find it a lot today. The name Christian being modified by another name in religion. But you don't find that in the New Testament. The only name you find believers wearing is the name Christian. And so that's, that's our appeal. In our effort to go back to the Bible. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's do what we find in the Bible. And let's, let's sort of cast off whatever we might find that's not supported by Scripture. Let's, 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 let's reject that. So since the name Christian is the only name that believers, disciples, saints wore in the New Testament, that's the only name we encourage people to wear. Just just wear the name Christian. Just be 
a Christian, without any other kind of modifying name associated with it. In the New Testament, do those who obey the gospel become anything in addition to becoming a Christian? No. And so that's our, that's our plea. What did the jailer become? He became a Christian. What did the people on the day of Pentecost become? They became Christians. What did Lydia become? She became a Christian. What do we want to become? We want to become Christians. No more, no less, nothing else. Now, let's take that just a little bit further. What we find in the New Testament is early Christians forming local churches. Now, the entire collective of Christians all through the world, just think of all the Christians throughout the world, the worldwide collective of Christians is described in different ways in the New Testament. The body of Christ, for example, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that that uh, Christ has been made head of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that fills all in all. And so the, the, the church is the body of Christ. So these believers, these Christians, when thought of, conceptualized, as, a, as a, just one group through the world, throughout the world, wherever they might be, that's the body of Christ. That's a biblical description of, of those Christians. They're described as the family of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul writes, Timothy, so that men will know how to behave themselves in the household of God, or the family of God. In Colossians chapter 1, we find that through Christ we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so Christians throughout the world are described as the kingdom of of God or the kingdom of heaven. So the body of Christ, the family of God, the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes simply the church. So Christ is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Now there's only one of these, isn't there? So we think about all Christians throughout the world, that's the body of Christ. There's just one of those. There's, there's just one kingdom of heaven made up of all of God's people throughout the world. There's just one of those. There's just one family of God, again, made up of all His people, wherever they might be. There's just one of those. Now, it's worth noting that there are no instructions in the New Testament to organize the church on a worldwide scale. And so there's nothing in the New Testament, no instruction in the New Testament, about electing a president who will govern the church all over the world. It's just not there. Or uh, electing an archbishop, or electing a pope who will oversee the worldwide church. There's just no instruction to do that. Christ is the head of the church, and He governs the church through His Word. So that's Ephesians chapter 1, of course. He's the head of the church, which is His body. He governs the church through the Word that He's given to us. Now, Although there's no instruction in the New Testament to organize the worldwide church, we find in the New Testament early disciples forming local churches, local groups of Christians sort of banding together to encourage each other, to worship together, to carry out the Lord's work in the world together. And so these local churches, yeah, we do read about that. We read about local churches in Jerusalem and Antioch and Asia and Ephesus and Sardis and Pergamum and, and so forth. 
So these are local churches. You know, we can describe those local churches in the same terms that we would describe the church worldwide. And so here's a local body of Christ, or here's a, a local family of God. These local churches did organize. Organize themselves by appointing qualified men to serve as elders who would oversee or pastor that local church. And so in Acts 14, verse 23, Paul's first journey, he went, he went through and uh, taught the gospel. People accepted it, obeyed it, he had a local church founded. And then he came back through those churches and appointed elders in every church. And so these local churches did organize themselves for the purpose of self-government, we might say. They appointed elders or bishops or overseers who uh, would, would oversee the local church. When we say oversee the church, that's the members, isn't it? That's the people. And so the elders are taking care of shepherding, pastoring the people in the church. They're guiding the work and the worship of the church. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, to appoint elders. You don't just gradually become an elder, but you're appointed to that office in uh, every city there in, in the island of Crete. We find elders specifically mentioned in Jerusalem, Ephesus, Philippi, Crete, perhaps some other places as well. The authority of these elders extended no further than the local church of which they were members. So that's an important point to establish as well. And so 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God among you. And so your oversight, your authority to shepherd, is limited to the flock of God among you, that local church of which they are a part. And though these local churches knew about each other and even communicated with each other, there was no effort to organize them into regional conferences or dioceses or districts or any other, anything, any organization bigger than the, the local church itself. Each local congregation was autonomous and governed itself under Christ and according to His Word. Today, local churches are joined together in large organizations according to distinctive doctrines and practices. And so, local churches that teach this and practice this, they join together with other local churches that teach and practice the same thing. They'll, they'll decide on a name, and that organization is to be distinguished from this group over here teaches and practices something different. A denominational approach. An arrangement not found in the New Testament. Our plea as we said a moment ago, restore that New Testament plan. Back to the Bible. Get back to the Bible and follow that New Testament pattern of non-denominational churches. So we've made two points tonight. <laughs> the two points are this. What do you become when you obey the gospel? Well, you become a believer, a disciple, a saint, a child of God a brother in Christ, but you wear the name Christian. And if you get back to the Bible, that's, that's the only name in religion that we wear. Well, we meet together with other disciples, other Christians, in a local congregation. 
And that local congregation is to be governed by elders who administer God's Word in the local congregation. And although we know people in other congregations, we're not organizationally tied together with them. That's just not a New Testament arrangement. Both of these points have been made, that have been made are the result of a certain approach to Scripture. So I just want to mention that. And so these points are made as a result of, on the basis of, a certain approach to Scripture. We want to find what we do in Scripture, but no more. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Don't go beyond what's written. 2 John verse 9 says, Don't go beyond the doctrine of Christ. We want to practice what we find here, and no more. So if a practice is not supported by the New Testament, either by a direct statement or implication, we don't want to do it. If religious names and titles and ecclesiastical organizations are not found in the New Testament, we don't want to do that. We want to avoid them. And so that's the idea of going back to the Bible and and basing our practice, our teaching, on what Scripture teaches and, and no more. And so we call upon people to be Christians, no more or less. I hope that I'll never ask anyone to be anything other than just a Christian, just just following the teaching of Jesus Christ. And our aim as a congregation here is to shape or fashion ourselves in doctrine and practice after the pattern for the church we find in the New Testament. That's our aim, is to fashion ourselves, shape this congregation after the pattern we find in the New Testament. Appreciate your attention tonight. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunities we've had today to come together and to, to worship you. We pray that what we've done has been pleasing to you, and we pray that we have participated in this worship, engaged in this worship, in spirit and in truth, as you would have us to do. We pray, Father, that it's been uplifting and encouraging to us as we've encouraged each other and we hope inspired each other to live lives that are dedicated to you and to your service. Help us, Father, to be faithful disciples of Jesus. Help us to follow the word that you've revealed to us. Help us to follow it as carefully as we can, not going beyond the Scripture, not falling short of what Scripture says, but just abiding in the Scripture uh, as we we go through this this life. We pray for the congregation here, Father, that we will practice what we find in Your Word, that we will do it with all our heart, with all our soul, that we will commit ourselves to doing Your work in Your way in the world. Father, we're thankful that You've sent Your Son into the world, that He died on the cross to make atonement for our sin. Our Father, we pray that we will accept the the blessing that comes through Him, that we will obey the gospel of Christ, that we will accept it as true, that we'll obey it, that we'll become Your children through faith, repentance, the confession of sin, being baptized in Jesus' name. And then, Father, help us to live faithfully as we go through this life in anticipation of the next, the glorious life that we'll have with You in eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and you're subject to the